0: Welcome back to part two of my conversation with Kothana Salvarish. As someone who on presentation benefits from colonization, it's incredibly important for those who uh, appear to be similar like me or are similar like me to understand decolonization and the role that we do play in that because it isn't it isn't just those of marginalized communities or identities that should be educating and challenging and and standing up for the change but also allyship is a huge part of that from my understanding and and that's where for something so uh so explicit as colonization and the decolonization um is is Something that we we should be allies for, and um if if we have compassion uh in our hearts or not even I think anyone like no matter where you come from, what you believe, whatever, like just be kind, I guess it is kind of compassion, but you, you just do someone else a solid, yeah. <laughs> in your paper, you state the importance of acknowledging the difficult and hurtful feelings that emerge during the practice of mindfulness, particularly in relation to self-care and decolonization of, of your body, which you've spoken about so beautifully. And 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 I feel a greater understanding of that notion. But what has, you know, and, and yourself being an art therapist in training, what has Art uh, and also someone who is an artist and and I guess has experienced that firsthand about the therapization that art can can have on someone, but when it comes to things like self care how like sometimes it's, it, there is such a disconnect uh, and as we 're talking somewhat offline like chaos is is part of our brand and And sort of how we, you know, whether we want to change that, whether we don't want to change that and being compassionate to self and actually acting on self-care and it being a verb and not just a noun, but how has, you know, the practice of art and art therapy impacted your life from a self-care perspective?
1: It's quite profoundly impacted my life because I think when I first, because now that I've I've graduated and I'm actually practicing as an art therapist. I think there's a different experience I have with it, noticing how um, it impacts people I work with. But as a trainee, I was really – I was nervous about it because it's it's a soft entry into talking about more uh, powerful psychological challenges, right? And it's still largely a trauma processing therapy, and so you do go into these really um, inwardly um, rich but um, sometimes volatile spaces. And I was nervous because I was like, it, it felt like an emergent power for me to be able to use art in that way where I could really uncover um, trauma within my body. And and I'll be, I'm, I'm being like, you know, quite honest in this sense of like um, quite frank about this experience for me. I felt is there risks in this um, using art in this way because there are benefits, but are there risks in this? Because it does, it surprises people. Um, how art can really, um, you know, uncover things that perhaps have been hidden in the recesses that are so entrenched that they've hidden in the recesses and then suddenly because of some emo- emotional distance from making art, you're able to kind of externalise and see these experiences in front of you without fully articulating them yet. And when you start to articulate and make connections, it can be quite powerful and painful in some cases, to suddenly see what's been held inward. Um, and so that, that was going through my mind as a trainee. And I think now as as a practising artist, what I take away is that my process is not necessarily going to be public and that's okay. My process is private and, you know, and my public display of art doesn't always align with what my process of um, reflection and art response is going to look like. Sometimes it's a real, you know, I don't think I can swear in here, but it's, it's real oh, messy. Oh, yes, you can. And Do
0: it. Whatever. It's a shit yeah. show.
1: It's a shit show. It's, it's a real yeah. shit show and <laughs> yeah. it's um, kind of, it, 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 it doesn't look like anything substantial you know if you were to look at it aesthetically it's just, it's like what what the fuck is that but really what it is is again it's like honestly reflecting on something that i'm feeling giving it space validating it through that re- response and then moving on to create another space in the body where you can hold something else and so that's how i've taken um you know how i understand art therapy with me into my into my practice It's creating that space where, um, I don't have to just sit in, in an area of pain that I can work through that. I can make art through that, but that can be private for me. I don't have to create a private and and, and civic kind of transport system. You know, I can just allow it to be held in a space outside of viewership.
0: Yeah. It doesn't have to be a commodity. And I think, uh, as people on this podcast, as listeners probably have picked up that Adele is one of my favorite artists. And um, the fact that she, you know, takes five years at a time to actually write a new album to me is just even more favors. Like she leaves you salivating, you know, for any glimpse of who she is. She definitely defies um, celebrity or celebrity status, but One of the things with her latest album that she talked about um, in her conversation with Apple Music was that she's made albums before or she has... Yeah, she's made albums before or made songs before where they're not released and she will never release them because they have been her process of understanding and learning and loving herself through a situation. And to me, that was something that was... Somewhat new, I think, because, and also uh, incredibly um, curious as to what the songs are, um, but the fact that she's, you know, you, you can go, you know, the full Monty, go the whole way through the process, create an artwork and everything, and it can just sit in a studio or sit in your home, and it's not for anyone else but you, because it's mostly about that process or that process is the artwork and the artwork is just, you know, a box ticked or uh, the wrapper that the Hungry Jack's meal came in or the McDonald's meal came in. Like it, it is just the, the vessel rather is far better, a far more eloquent way of saying. But oh,
1: no, I love that. I think I that's really that.
0: interesting. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah you need things again that are just yours i think when there's this idea like when 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 i say oh i'm I'm a practicing artist and i um and i'm also an art therapist that somehow it's it feels the same when you're an art therapist and an artist i think in those spaces sometimes i do um i afford myself inward kind of processing but i also acknowledge when um I want to be able to see myself in a public space and I want my work to be there, but it's that distinction. It's knowing that it's not always about uncovering that into the public eye and it's okay to keep things for you. It's okay that just because now you're a practicing artist doesn't mean you have to show all of your work and that a lot of that is sacred to you. And that's really important to honor that part of the process of making art is that people don't have ownership over it and I think it's okay to keep before it to yourself before it starts to get extracted from other people.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's huge. And I think that is really uh, interrelated with everything that is, is core to what your paper is about, what the, the personal uh, proclamation maybe of defying colonization, heteronormativity, Prejudice, internal race, internal racism, internalized racism, sorry, um, in the fact that you're owning it and that you really are, I guess, understanding it and owning it and being able to not have to, you know, put it out there like you said, but at the same time with your Archibald piece, like you were saying, it was, you know, it was like the perfect... Um, Concoction of it being all about power and reclaiming bodily space and discovering self and celebrating your uh heritage and your um queerness and the fact that you are a, a, a are a woman and and having it put up against you know a, a and, and placed within something that is so. Uh, in a sense beautifully archaic uh purely from an a, a uh, an architectural sort of viewpoint but in something that is so formal and and sort of old worldly and that you're even by having that piece in there you're challenging that that casual acceptance that we are all so blind to and i think that you know that's Amazing and so useful for us to understand and to actually be able to to take in when we we look at works of art or we look at things that the way that they subject society and, and our notions and challenge us. I mean, there's the old sort of saying that art asks questions and design solves them and not those specific questions. Because uh, I don't think design can solve Although, yeah um, But just the idea of, you know Design isn't about creating something That poses a question per se But it's more about art And I guess through that That exploration of self and experience And, yeah I I feel like I'm rambling But at the same time I'm, I'm very much in awe And rambling because I, yeah Am also ex- uh, processing it vocally and and all at all at once.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, no, yeah. I, it is it's funny like what you said about it being at the backdrop of, of a of an institution that um, is, has certain history and I think mm. it's um, it's it that that if it, it feels intimidating when you walk into the space sometimes but I think again it's um it's being okay with that um, feeling in the body and going well, you still deserve to be in the space. And yeah, I I think again, it's like saying it's okay to be a little bit a bit vulnerable in that space, but I deserve to be there. And believing that actually is the hardest bit. Yeah. Yes.
0: It's one thing saying it, but believing it is is a whole other kettle of fish. And quite often, it's the pot curling the kettle black. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right there with you one of the things that you talked about was your response to racial trauma being burnout and using terms like power hoarding and usefulness and maintenance and i think burnout is something that you know we are familiar with and i've definitely experienced emotional or physical or mental burnout but at the same time I feel like you put a new layer to it and a new experience to it, which I found incredibly noteworthy. And and I wanted you to just dive into that for us and, and tell us a little bit about like these terms power hoarding, usefulness and maintenance and how they have been uh intrinsically tied to your uh your burnout response to racial trauma?
1: Yeah, that's a big, that's a big question. I did, I did write about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing, but I, I am loaded. loaded, Yeah. (laughs) I remember, you know, when I first started, um, noting that kind of that experience I've had for that, it's been an enduring experience, you know, um, that there is this obvious signifier of, okay, a really, racist experience happened and i'm traumatized by it it's like this ongoing and persistent kind of trauma where there's microaggressions um where you're reminded that you're not supposed to be in a place um where suddenly people you know people t- say things to me like oh it's amazing how articulate you are and i wasn't expecting that and um just like huh, things, what? Were, yeah 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 well that's how so terrible. common like even i yeah it's even when I was studying and, you know, at uni, that would come up a lot. Like, um, and the funny thing is, it's like, well, I'm using these words so I can be part of this fucking discourse that has excluded me. Um, And I've had to learn this language, not because I feel like I want to have this elitist kind of abstracted um, knowledge system, but because I felt like if I didn't have this I couldn't participate and how do you say that to people because that's part of part of racial trauma is like it is is it's nuanced right and it's not always this sort of violence in terms of a physical violence that you're holding on to it's it's those injustices of those microaggressions it's the enduring quality of it um and for me when I say things like maintenance and of and and power hoarding so power hoarding really is like is the acquiring of resources and, um, you know, out of, out of this, this fear that another group is going to come along and take it away. And so you acquire, you acquire, you acquire, you make it less and less accessible. And all of a sudden, you know, you're hoarding all this power that is, um, that you're never going to seed. And so, you know, when I think about maintaining those systems, like maintaining those pervasive systems, I think about how I participate in that maintenance, how I find myself sometimes power hoarding um when I feel like, oh, I'm the only brown person in this space. So I need I need to know everything. I need to make sure that, you know, um I'm the go-to person in this space. And this is, you know, it's it's hard because you feel like if you don't, then um, you're going to lose whatever little slot of power is there for you. And and that's why I have a real issue with, you know, diversity discourse because it doesn't talk about those experiences of people of colour in those spaces. It It centres the white experience. It's talking about diversity in relation to whiteness. It's not talking about diversity in relation to, people of colour in that space and how they feel when they're having a conversation like that and and, and why people are talking in, in the absence of understanding that lived experience. And then what happens within people, um, the relationship between people of colour is that there either is an alliance or there is, a, there is a type of do I need to fight for space within this dynamic? And so it is very hard to then know, you know, um, you know, whether or not what you're doing is really creating space for, for people of color, or if it's just creating space for you. Um, and that's something that I think about a lot. And that's why that work was really personal. Sorry. It was really personal because it was, it was speaking to how, what are ways in which it shows up in me? Why does it show up that way? And that's why I want to do more research.
0: Yeah. hundred percent. It's complex. There's, I can't remember when she said it, and I've referenced it before. I think it's one of my favourite quotes. It's by Shirley Chisholm, and she says, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And I think that that is such a brilliant quote in, in its intention and what it's explicitly saying. But I feel like we need to go that step further and we need to rebuild the table. We need to actually, but I think the first step is bring, bringing a folding chair and it sort of builds upon the fact that, you know, if you are given a seat at the table, you move out or you move over to allow another and then, you know, you pay it forward in that sort of sense. But I think it's so foreign. It's such a foreign concept.
1: For you, do you feel like it's a foreign concept for you, like talking about the seat of the ta- at the table?
0: No, I think it's a foreign concept to us generally and, and I definitely have been a part of that previously and when it was when I learnt about it again it's un- unlearning and being completely cognizant at every point to be like there isn't this group here, there isn't this diversity here, there isn't this person. I can't speak to any of those and yet I've got a seat here. And if I look around, there is nothing but a sea of white. And there was a great um, moment on The Hollywood Reporter with Ellen Pompeo, famously known as Meredith Grey. Uh, and uh, she was so articulate in what she said. She said that, I think it was during um, Black Lives Matter and the whole sort of parade and changing and that happened, what was that, like two years ago? Um and she so beautifully said um, that we, as white people, we created the problem, so it is our problem. We shouldn't be off-handing it. They, uh, people, BIPOC individuals are not there or people of different uh, backgrounds, LGBTQIA+, um, religious backgrounds, whatever it may be or those individuals may identify as... We created the problem as, as you know, the the um, cis, het, white individuals and, and particularly males. Um, and it's a problem that we need to be fixing because we still have those seats at the table. And she said that if she walks onto a set and she doesn't see the world that she sees when she's outside of her job, then she won't do anything. She will wait until they change it up until they bring in more diversity until they reflect the world that we move and live and love in and i thought that was it was a moment where it was like yeah that's you know that's that that is so eloquently put particularly as it is that hard moment of unlearning and and when it comes to uh, the microaggressions of racial trauma and the way that causes racial trauma in the way that we can be casually racist. And and even though our intent may be pure, it doesn't match up with what we're saying. And, and when you said about the power hoarding and then the fighting against each other, like, do we, since we've received this piece of power land... Um, per se do we need to stake claim and put fences up and make sure that no one else gets on it do we need to propertize it um and i think that from i haven't experienced it but from my mum and her experience as a woman and a woman navigating the world professionally and personally she said that it, it very much is within this whole sort of feminism movement of like, yes, we we need to be equal. We need to be have, have more women at the table. We need to be at the same level as men. But then occasionally there are those occurrences where those women get to that point and they're so fearful of losing that power or that position in power that they, they leave other women on the wayside. And it's, I, I can't comment on it as a man, um, but it is a problem that we have created as men and particularly white men and and the colonialization that we've created and and, I, and my ancestors have created for those who are just the same ancestral bandwidth as those who created it and enforced it the first time and we're still doing it however many hundreds of years down the track and seeing difference to ourselves as challenging or uncomfortable and what would, what do we do? We sweep it under the carpet. We get rid of it. <laughs> um, and to understand burnout in that sense and, and to actually add that extra layer of like or colour burnout better in the fact that there is that power hoarding, that usefulness, that maintenance and that the, uh, the interrelations that it causes not just against those oppressing but also those oppressed um, for, for lack of a better, less victimizing term. <laughs>
1: yeah it's um yeah it's like how it's applied laterally as well it's not just about how we negotiate that power um that hierarchy of power right it's how it's applied laterally within community and you know for me that's what I'm unlearning is that urgency of, of someone's giving me a little bit of power um I need to hold on to it and I really I think more so about what is it that I'm trying to say? What is it that I'm advocating for? And so that's why, you know, I'm really conscious of all of that. And um, that burnout for me is really the emotional labour that's involved in um, in towing that, kind not towing that line, but finding that balance between wanting to um, feel like I can take up space and and, and you know, wanting to, to to claim power and and not not minimize that that power in my body and feel proud of that power, but also the balance between that and wanting to make sure community has access. And so I think a lot like I don't want a fold out chair. I want a freaking like makers and son like sofa, please. Yeah. Table. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I want something. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's not just a quality. Something permanent. Yeah, it's not being permanent. It's not just like it's not about quality. Equity is about understanding that you know there is different experiences. You know, even though we have navigating a, a, a certain experiences, there's different um, bodily experiences because of those histories and because of certain obstacles, because of um, enduring trauma, and it makes it makes it harder to state claim or ask for something and so those who do have a platform or those who do have power i see it as you you know it's important to ask yourself that question like do i want um do i want to be complicit or do i want to create space because um, ultimately what is the shared experience? You know, the shared experience hopefully that, again, that collective consciousness is an equitable world, a world where you can be yourself and not only some people, some privileged people get to be who they are but all people get to be who they are and get to define what that is for them on their terms. Um, so I think, you know, I hope that kind of speaks to a little bit about what, you know, you asked in terms of um Power and in terms of um, how how I see it being applied you know with power hoarding laterally in community, and how I hope that I can you know find a way to name that when it happens to and and you know to call myself out on that when it happens and to know that that's hard to do it's hard to say actually, even in this space you know I'm it is going, I'm so into, hard. A white person and I'm saying, hey, I sometimes feel like I'm on power <laughs> <Howard."> And it's, <laughs> it's it's a funny kind of conversation <laughs> we're having. But I think it's, it's because it I, um, I, I want to be honest about how that shows up for me. And that's part of the research that I'm doing. And so that's, you know, I'm hoping mm. to, you know, I just got accepted at Sydney Uni this year for my um, master's. In, I'm really excited and that's amazing the kind of work I want to do amazing yeah yeah I'm I'm really yeah I'm really fortunate to be able to further explore this and um and to allow myself to broaden the scope I think as well of what I'm looking at
0: I am so excited for you I uh I think that you know this area and very simply the area of seeking more diversity is something that is uncomfortable. It is hard. It is, uh, we keep going back. It is unlearning something about something core about our own privilege, whatever that may be in whatever circumstance that may be. And there was this incredibly humbling experience I had about mid last year where i went to this um this uh sympos- national symposium um with uh aboriginal and torres strait islander peoples and communities and and it was held in sydney and it was held in the novotel like overlooking the water and it was beautiful and everything and i was i and it was called uh talk with us walk with us was the sort of the short and it was, I, I mean, that sort of grappled, it got me and I was like, okay, I'm going. Um, and and it, it was an invitation for people of all backgrounds to attend and so that we can talk about it and we can walk with it. Switching gears to what you were just talking about with your masters and being accepted into masters and further research and the excitement of, of continuing your research. I wanted to finish on a conversation, on a question, sorry, in conversation um, about what literature and, and you were saying before the concept that peer-reviewed literature is a signifier that this is certified, this is fact, this is what it needs to be. And and I've definitely come up to the challenge of that within sort of barracking for lived experience and, and being able to stand on the shoulders of greats over the course of the years and the decades who have been fighting longer and harder and, and in some respects more than I have, um, but being able to start creating that, that academic paper trail, um, in that space. And so I, I completely empathize with how hard that is, but I wanted to ask in, you know, your work so far, how have you found it from sort of You know, it being somewhat, like you were saying before, a microaggression of or a reminder or a rehashing of traumas. Um, And and what have you discovered in the research in, you know, better understanding, but also the gaps that are yet to be filled? And and personally, I'm hoping you're one of the ones that are going to fill it. But um, yeah, yeah, another loaded question, but a great, hopefully a great one.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, you know, doing that paper, yeah, it, you know, there's a certain place you go to when you are um, having to articulate very personal, very private um, responses to painful subject matter. And there's also, for me, though, I think it was a way for me to feel like um, I didn't, again, have to minimise something I could actually release it from my body so something else was holding it for me um in some ways that's what it felt like because during those two years of studying I felt a lot of this burden of um holding myself back from actually fully articulating what I was experiencing and feeling because I had to get through a damn course that I loved, but also that was problematic in a lot of ways. Um, and so I had to find a way in which I could navigate that, but also be able to show up with getting, you know, the marks I want to further my, my, um, my education. And so, yeah, it takes a lot of energy and labor and that was part of a burnout that happened for me. And so I think, that's what happened through that paper. That's how it impacted me when I was rehashing things and when I was, um, again, reconnecting to things that felt very difficult. But I think in terms of the gaps in research, you know, it's what drives me is that I know that I couldn't possibly know everything. And what excites me is that I get to connect with people who have lived experience because my um, supervisory panel uh, people of color and people whose work and research um, revolve around decolonization and critical pedagogies and that 's something i 'm really interested in, but that 's something that makes me feel safe, knowing again it 's different when i when I work on this research that potentially I can feel safer um, when I do this because that 's huge this kind of work I think people may assume that you 're fine with it because you 're writing about it, but actually. It's a constant negotiation and renegotiation, um, you know, within a system that feels like it only wants one version of you and that's palatable version, right? And so I feel, you know, with this, this new research that I'm undergoing that I understand that but I also understand that those who are going to be holding space for me to research have lived experience and it could really help um, support me in creating work that's affirming.
0: Again, another beautiful answer to such a arguably difficult question, um, but also a jam-packed question rather. And so I think that, you know, as you were speaking then, I was thinking about uh, a friend of mine and and i also a colleague in the the lived experience mental health space who is a poet and a writer and incredibly articulate and connected and um uh yeah just so beautiful his writing and he is an is an Aboriginal man and he um he has talked about that as well, the exploration and of actually very similarly to what you've sort of discussed and, and im imbued with us today about that discovery of self and realizing that you don't have to take up such a small space, but you can own that, that physical, emotional, mental, uh, place that, that you should be allocated in an, a, an equitable society. Um, and well, but it's been, this conversation just overall has been something that is just, Oh, by the way, his name is Dakota Fiera. F- Fiera. Amazing. Um, yes.
1: If anyone wants
0: to check him out. Um, Yeah. and and, Oh, and the reason why I was thinking about that uh, uh, is uh, when you were talking about the way in which the rubric, the marking rubric and everything is so uh, old, essentially, to put it in, (laughs) in plain terms, and it doesn't ever truly match up to the progression of learning and understanding that an individual like yourself, goes through and, and walks out those proverbial doors with. Um, and he's, you know, he is working at the University of Wollongong now with a course, a new course, that marks you on your personal growth with a subject, which is completely subjective to um, the individual and where they started and where they walk out. And to me, that really is radicalising our own institutions that we see as pillars to society in in education and um and intellect. So huge shout out to him and, and the work that he's doing and, and working with, but also to yourself and actually being able to un- identify that, but also being able to seek ways around that or ways that you can see that, that or ways that you see equally that this is something this is a hurdle that we need to jump collectively but for the time being my collective is those with lived experience in in the same area as yourself and not those sitting at the top of the hierarchy and that's right yeah this has just been such a wonderful conversation
1: oh thank you thank you so i I, I just again, I want to thank you for making space for conversations like this, because there's always this app, there's this apprehension I think to even have this conversation. We talked about it in the beginning, where there's this sort of explicit or implicit sort of negative connotations to like being in a discourse like this because oh you're going to fuck it up or you're going to get cancelled or whatever it is. But I think what's important is that um, we can be honest and that we can non-defensively listen to each other and you know um and kind of just sit and hold what each other is saying I think that's a huge part of conversations like this and noticing what comes up in the body if you need to take a deep breath if you need to kind of um take a moment like that's okay but I think it's just great that I was able to chat with you today and um and thank you again for holding space for this
0: it was absolutely my pleasure and is my pleasure. And I feel so much more on fire for helping others understand this. And and that's what this whole podcast is about, is aiding us in this progressive society to understand better those experiences, particularly their ramifications on our mental health and well-being, but those experiences that do impact them um, and have positive or negative um, elements to them. And, yeah again just hats off and continue your wonderful work and continue painting and one day when i'm lucrative enough i will be purchasing an artwork of yours so
1: oh it's really uh, just just
0: know that there's there's some money coming your way from me indefinitely (laughs) sometime down the road
1: oh i love that thanks sam thank you so much for taking the time today
0: If you like this episode and want to listen to more, hit that subscribe button and give us a rating. You can also leave a comment if you feel so inclined. You can follow us, The Informed, on Instagram, at The Informed, obviously. But it's spelled T-H-E-I-N-F-O-R-M-D. Informed without the E.